Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Fair warning, I've gotten very little sleep this weekend, so I may be a little bit more emotional than usual. If that happens, just roll with it. If it makes you uncomfortable to see a man cry, I'm just warning you in advance. But um, so I've got to tell you an emerge story first before I get into my message, because this was the, the, the moment that impacted me most at the conference. And I had a, um, I had a moment when I got off of, of stage, and I'm going to do my best to actually preach the message that I planned to preach at the conference to you today, because it's a really good message. But how many of you know when God wants to move, he's going to move whether you're prepared for it or not. But I've learned from experience that if you're prepared and God moves, you get to experience his presence in the moment. You get to experience the presence of God and like, oh, God is so here right now, and I can just move, move, move with him in the most beautiful way. But if you're not prepared and God moves, it's kind of scary in the moment. Just to you, not to everybody else, because all everybody else sees is a move of God. But you don't get to experience it because you're somewhere else. So instead of God is so here, all you get to experience was God, is, God was so there. I wish I was. And I got to experience a moment of God is so here at the conference on Friday night. But when I stepped off the stage, I was still kind of like, whoa, what just happened? And literally, I took two steps from the stage, and a man came up and grabbed my shoulders and said, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> He said, I need to talk to you. And I said, what's your name? He's like, you know me. I know you. From Balboa campus, I know you. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't recognize him. I did know him, but he was about 70 pounds lighter than the last time I saw him. And by this point, security has noticed that something is odd. So Jeff... Jeff Forbes sprung from his seat and was like right there looking at me. Do you like, do you need me to take this guy out? And I just felt from God, no, that this is something that, 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 that needs to happen. It's making me very, very uncomfortable right now, but I just, I know that I need to see it through. And there's moments like that, and then there's moments that are like, no, actually security needs to come and get this guy out because I'm actually in danger of losing my life right now because this is very, very, a very, very scary moment. And it could have gone either way, but it went the other way. And he said, I, I came, COVID took me out, man. And um, this guy was supposed to go through our recovery workshop. He's the brother of, of a man named Devin that was in our internship for two years and served this church so faithfully. He's up at our San Marcos campus. And his brother had come. He had nine months sober, and he was going to go through our, our workshop. But then COVID happened. 
and we, we couldn't figure out what to do, so we pushed the workshop off for a couple of months until we realized that it could actually be done successfully on Zoom, but during those two months, he relapsed, and for the past three years, he's been relapsing, and he said, I've died 32 times. 33 is my lucky number, and he showed me a 33 on his neck, and he said, I don't think I have another one in me. I came here to this conference. I left detox. I'm nine days sober, but I left detox because I need an encounter with God. I need an encounter with God, and I, 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 when I got here... I, I wanted an encounter, but since I've been here, I've been feeling worse, not better, and you've got you've to help me. And I'm feeling like, man, I'm like tapped out right now. Like I just danced with God, and I'm like, I'm like reeling from that experience. And so I went up to my friend Rex Crane, and I said, hey, there's this guy, can you pray for him? And he said, man, can, can it wait till tomorrow? And I said, I don't, I don't think we have till tomorrow. Can you please pray for him? And so he grabbed Tracy Armstrong and, uh, and they prayed for this guy. And Tracy got a word of knowledge from God. And this guy was like straight up manifesting. I mean, it was like, it was scary. And there was like so much going on that it was like very like, what, I don't know what's going on completely, but I know that God is somehow moving in this, that God can move in this, that this guy is here and then he needs to encounter, encounter the living God right now. Because he said to me that like, I feel like I should just leave, but I know if I leave that, I, I, that there's no coming back from this. And Tracy started praying for him, and he said, your addiction started when you were coming, when you were being delivered out of your mother, that you had your umbilical cord wrapped around your, your neck, and you almost died. And there was a feeling of coming into life, but also so close to death. And this is something that I that you've experienced in your addiction, being so close to death, but also so close to something that you can't reach and it's been haunting you. And he just had all of these details from this guy's birth that he couldn't have possibly known. And then he started calling evil spirits out of him and I could see them leaving. And the guy was so like, he's like, thank you thank you for what you did. I'm just going to go now. And the next morning I was talking to a friend of mine out outside of the, the tent and I see this guy walk up and he's smiling from ear to ear. His entire countenance has changed. And he came up to me and he threw his arms around me and started weeping and said, I got, I got the encounter that I came here for. Last night after I left, I didn't know what happened exactly, but I walked up to the campsite. And while I was still a little way off, my brother saw me and he came to me and he prayed me through deliverance and he delivered me from all of the evil spirits that were in me. And I realized it's such a beautiful picture of this house that men come in not knowing where they belong and have a connection with God, the perfect father. 
are restored with sonship to God, but then are restored in sonship, in loving community with men and spiritual fathers. And in that community, those men raise those new sons up to become fathers, and then those fathers go and do the same, and that's what happens at Emerge. I don't know if you realize this, but Emerge is the largest team-based event in the world. And it is so unusual that people come from churches all over to try to figure it out because it's a head scratcher of how can you do this? How can you get so many men to come together in this way? And it's not just teaching. It's not just impartation. It's not just encounter with God and teaching of men, but it's brotherhood. It's fatherhood. It's this, it's this incredible thing. And I realized it's because we're in a house that produces fathers because our lead pastor, Pastor Jurgen, dealt with the stuff with his father so that he could be a son, so that he could in turn be a father. And this weekend, we saw 320 fathers raised up, the captains and the co-captains of our teams to father the men at the conference. And that's why it works, and that's why it doesn't work in a lot of churches, because a lot of churches haven't dealt with their issues with their father, so they haven't fully become sons so that they could become fathers. And this weekend for me personally, I had a revelation on Thursday night standing at the altar during worship that I was a beloved son of this house. And it wasn't like a prideful moment. It was a very, very humbling moment moment because I had come here in need of a lot of things that I didn't even know that were missing from my life. The first service that I ever came to at, I was on my second date with my beautiful wife, Jenny, and I came to an 11 o'clock service at Balboa and Pastor Jurgen was preaching and it was an awesome message. But after that service, I went out to lunch with a bunch of Jenny's friends. I was meeting them for the first time and they were amazing people. They were Christians, but they weren't the kind of Christians that I'd have to apologize for in advance to my secular friends of like, listen, they're a little, but I promise you, if you'll just, if you'll just give them a chance, you'll see that they're really good people. They weren't like that. They were just like, oh my gosh, I want to be associated with these people because there is life in them and they're not weird. They're filled with the spirit, but the spirit hasn't made them weird. It's made them whole and they're just amazing and I want to be around them. And all of those people were coming back for the 5 p.m. service at Balboa. And I was like, why are you going two times in one day? I, I was sitting with you at the service. I know that you heard the message. Why do you need to hear it again? And they're like, oh, no, no. It's not going to be the same message. It's a, it's a different message from a different pastor. And I'm like, different pastor? That's weird. I'd never been to a church where other pastors were allowed to preach unless the senior pastor had a better opportunity somewhere else and those guys were just getting thrown the scraps. But they said, different message, different pastor. Actually, this guy that's preaching, it's his first time. He went through our internship program, and he's giving his, his first opportunity to preach a full message, and we're going to go and support him. And I'm like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> so the parking lot's going to be, like, pretty much empty, so I can just, like, roll up, like, two minutes beforehand and get a good spot. <laughs> 
Well, I showed up to the church and the parking lot wasn't empty. It was twice as full as it had been at the 11 o'clock service. And thank God for one of Jenny's awesome friends that saved me a seat because people were sitting on the floor. And the entire front row was packed out with all of the pastors from the other campus and and they were expecting that God was going to move because they had their notebooks out and their pens ready, ready to receive from this man that was just stepping up to the platform for the first time to preach a full service. And at the center of the front row was Pastor Jurgen, the loudest voice cheering him on, the father standing at the sidelines championing the son that was raised up in that, in this house. And Pastor Drew, who many of you know, was not Pastor Drew then, he was just Drew Davies, got up on stage and delivered this incredible word. And what I saw in that moment was something that was so healthy that I, did, I doubted that it even existed in a church. And I knew that I'd found my home. But this was my 10th emerge this year. And I prayed two things for this conference that one, that it would be 100% fun from start to finish. (laughs) That it wouldn't feel like work, that it would just feel like fun. And it was. But I also prepared my heart to receive something fresh because I know that as long as I'm on this side of eternity, God's still got work to do in me. And on Friday night, I got this, Thursday night, I got this revelation about being a son and like really just solidly planted in sonship, well-loved by my heavenly father, well-loved by my spiritual father, well-loved by the fathers that are in my life and also able to love well the sons that God has given me, both natural and spiritual to tend to and feeling 100% like solid in that. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moment. So I'm grateful for this house and I've eaten up a lot of my time already, but I promise to get to this message. Um, I love, I love, love, love our church. And if you're new to uh, Awaken Church, welcome. You are in a wonderful, beautiful house. So today I want to talk to you about uh, King David. You know, he is the most famous man in the Bible, aside from Jesus. We know more about King David than we know about any other human being from the ancient world. And a lot of the reason is because David allowed himself to be laid bare. We know about his life, we know about his accomplishments, but we also know about his failures. We know a lot about his failures. And I know that King David was a fierce warrior and if he had taken his sword with one swift swipe of his sword, he could have wiped out all of the negative things about his legacy if he didn't want them known. And I said this at Emerge and it's such a beautiful thing to consider. That David was called a man after God's own heart, but we'll hear this morning about how many times he fell short of God's calling on his life and made very, very, very serious mistakes. Mistakes that if you judge them by human standards would completely disqualify him from holding any post or being accepted in any room in this world. 
But nevertheless, he's called a man after God's own heart. And I really believe that the reason he's called that is because David knew how to repent. That throughout his life, though he got way off track, he never lost his true north. He always came back to God. Many times because he had failed so badly and so painfully, but he always came back to God. And he wrote about all of those failures in the Psalms. And I don't know if any of you have noticed this. This was something that was like fresh news to me. And I've been reading the Bible for a while. But most of the Psalms start out to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. And I want to put this in context for you because it was pretty mind-blowing to me that David didn't have like a private journal that he wrote about his failures and his pain in. He wrote them on scrolls and then handed them to Pastor Mike Yeager and said, hey, I've written this worship song for Sunday. And I don't want it just sung in this church. I want it sung in all of the churches across the lands until the end of time. It's a catchy song. It starts off with my very worst sins. The ways that I've failed myself, the ways that I've failed God, the ways that I've failed those that have depended on me the most. And then there's this little bridge that goes into the way it just absolutely gutted my soul. It's pretty raw, but I think, I think people will like it. You could put like a good little samba beat to it. And, uh, and then I finish it off with even though I've failed, even though I'm utterly gutted, I know how good God is and how faithful he is to restore me. And I know that because he's restored me that he can restore everybody. He can restore the darkest, most broken parts of this world because in every testimony is the spirit of prophecy and because he's done it for me, he also wants to do it for you. And so I want these songs sung from the rooftops until the end of time to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. And it just made this beautiful, beautiful picture to me. He wanted to remember for his wins, but he also wanted to be remembered for his losses so that we could know even when we lose, God is still there, ready to restore us. If we just turn to him and ask, he'll be there. Pick us up from the dirt and lift us up to heights that are so much greater than we could ever ask or achieve on our own if we hadn't failed in the first place. David understood probably more than any other man in the Bible the words that Paul wrote that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. And it's in my, my weakness that God's light shines the brightest. It's when I expose the darkness and let his light in that the darkness has to flee because in light, no darkness can exist. But there are some things in David's life that I don't think he dealt with on this side of eternity. And I think that they were the fuel for a lot of his greatest failures. And I wanna start by looking at a, a picture in the Bible 
at the beginning of David's life, close to the beginning of David's life when he's anointed. My message today, by the way, is called Uprooting the King's Burdens. So we are going, going back, back to Judah, Judah, about 3,000 years ago to the town of Bethlehem, which I don't know if you realize this, but David was from Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, David was a shepherd, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, that is a message for another time. But there's an account in 1 Samuel 16 that when the prophet Samuel had a word from God that God's anointing had departed King Saul, the first king of Israel, and that Samuel was going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the king of Israel, that when Samuel came to town, under false pretenses, by the way, because this word came to God, and Samuel, by the way, was like the pope of Israel, that I don't know if you've had this picture, I had this picture, I'm assuming that others have had this picture, that I thought when the prophet came to anoint one of Jesse's sons, it was like, you know, like a, a picture of like John the Baptist, this like raggedy, bearded, locust-eating, honey-drinking, homeless-looking guy that had just come out of being like half-naked in the desert, and he turns up at dinner, and it's just like a casual night at the house of Jesse. David hasn't quite gotten home yet. He's still out in the, the field, and Samuel's kind of casually looking around, being like, who, who should I anoint? But it wasn't like that at all, that Samuel was the priest of the nation of Israel. He was like the pope. And it says in this account that when God came to him and said that his that he was gonna take his spirit from King Saul and give it to somebody else to anoint a new king that he needed, that Jesse needed to go to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite and find one of his sons that the town fathers of, uh, of Bethlehem heard that he was coming. He was announced because he was like the Pope. The Pope just doesn't like turn up anywhere without the like Pope mobile and an entourage and like a whole thing. And Samuel knew that this was going to be a big deal. He knew that it was going to get back to Saul. And he's like, I can't just go anoint a new king. Saul will have my head. And God said, that's cool. Just grab a cow, grab a heifer, go there and say that you're going to sacrifice before the Lord. So that the town fathers of Bethlehem, like the mayor and all of his guys, said to Samuel, why, why are you here? Because at that time, the prophet could come to a town and, and bring the judgment of God on that region. And they thought that he was coming to smite them. And he's like, uh, don't trip. I'm just coming to sacrifice this cow. It's like my personal devotion. It's, it's, it's cool. But um, hey, could you guys go fetch Jesse and make sure he brings all his sons? Anybody grow up Catholic? Few of you, more of you than most of the other campuses. So if the Pope called your dad, I didn't even call him, sent his guys to call your dad and told your dad to gather all of his sons and bring them for an audience with the Pope, your dad wouldn't leave one of his sons at home. But when Samuel came, he came with, or when Jesse came to meet Samuel, he only had seven of his sons with him. And Samuel went and, and tried to anoint what looked like the guy that should be king. 
But God was like, that's not, that's not it. You're looking at the outside. I look at the, the heart. And so he's going around trying to find where the oil is going to flow out on one of these sons. And he realizes that the guy that he's supposed to anoint isn't there. So he asks Jesse and he says, do you have another son? And he's like, oh, yeah, the runt that's out in the field tending sheep. So most scholars believe that David was an illegitimate child. And at that time in the law, an illegitimate child wasn't welcome to worship in the temple. He wasn't welcome to worship with the congregation. He was an outcast. He was a half-breed. And when David is lamenting about the torture that he grew up in, how he was hated by his brothers, how he was constantly tormented, he says, I have become like an alien to my father's sons, a or a, a strange, an alien to my brothers, a stranger to my mother's sons. Separation, mom's sons, brothers, that word stranger in Hebrew is mamzer, and it means uh, half-breed. So they say that David was ruddy, and I know that I've got a picture of like all the Israeli boys, and then uh, like Seamus McTavish over here. <laughs> and I, I, when I read ruddy, I wasn't thinking like, oh, he's like freckly, redheaded guy, I was thinking maybe he was just a little bit like flushed because he's athletic and he's been, you know, out jogging with the sheep or, or something. But I, I thought, you know, there's no redheads in the Middle East. But while I was researching for this message, I found that the, in Kurdistan, there's the Yazidi tribe and they are known for having, like the Bible says David had, bright eyes red hair. There's a picture of these Yazidi people. These are all northern Iraqi, Mesopotamian, ancient tribes, 6,000 years old. So if you go back to the other slide, you can imagine what this would look like. He's bringing this son that's not supposed to be able to worship with the rest of the congregation of Israel because he's a half-breed. I would guess that it wasn't like an oversight by Jesse, but Jesse's thinking that I can't, like, I can't let this guy be seen as a son, that he doesn't belong in church. How am I supposed to bring him before the high priest? But God has a heart for orphans. He brought his own son into the world as an orphan one that was born without a natural father, that had no natural inheritance through his father's line because he wanted to show his heart for those who are fatherless. And some of us are physically fatherless, that we grew up without fathers in our homes. Some of us are emotionally fatherless because our father was in our home, but he wasn't in our lives. And some of us are spiritually fatherless because our fathers didn't deal with their own burdens in their lifetime. And though they, they tried, there was still something missing because we never got the revelation that we were beloved sons. 
And I believe that was the thing in David's life that he didn't deal with himself. Because very soon after he's anointed by Samuel, it says that the Spirit of God departed Saul and landed on David, and God sent a distressing spirit. There are some people that I think have wrongly taught that the distressing spirit that God sent was demonic, but God will never send a demon. God doesn't send demons to people. I believe what he sent was a spirit of conviction. Conviction is another word for guilt. And guilt is a gift from God if you'll let it be. But you have to have a revelation of being a beloved son who will always be accepted for guilt to become a gift. Because if you see guilt as exclusion, if you see guilt and your feeling of guilt as being something that excludes you from the presence of God, you'll turn that guilt inward and guilt will turn into shame. Guilt is supposed to tell you, I've done something wrong, stop. I've stepped out of the covering of God. I need to be recovered by God. I need to come back under his covering. I need to come back to the foot of the cross and I need to repent and I need to say, God, I know that I've done something wrong. I know that there's nothing in me that can repay the wrong that I've done, but I know that you have already repaid more than I could possibly ask, more than I could possibly use up. I know that there is more room at this place than there is room, than there is possibility for me to sin in my life, that if I come back to you, that I will always be forgiven because I'm a beloved son. And I know that you have me in this journey. I know that you're faithful to complete every good work that you start until the day that you bring your son back. But I know that until you split the sky or call me home, that I'm gonna be a work in progress. But it's a beautiful promise because I will always be progressing. And if I learn to see guilt as a gift that is in inviting me back to the foot of the cross so I can again come before God like David did time after time after time. And not just kneel and bow, but confess. Let that revelation break my heart. Let that clear out the things that are in me that have been blocking God so I can invite him back in so he can restore me. But David had this, this spirit with him and the spirit had departed Saul and Saul was tormented because David had the revelation about repentance. Saul did not. So Saul, that spirit of conviction can torment you. And if you internalize it and try to deal with something that is above your pay grade to remove, if you don't let God do that heart surgery, the thing that's meant to bless you will torment you like it did King Saul. So Saul invited David in because he heard that the spirit of God was with David and that David was a good fighter and that he was a very good harp player. So he invited David into his house to perform for him. And he acknowledged David was a good performer and there's this line in there that's just, it's like, it's mind-blowing to me and it says, and David loved Saul deeply. If you were love-starved, 
And somebody that's sort of like a father even acknowledges you. You can have a love for them, an instant love, because it's like, you know, it's like the parched earth in the desert that just a little drop of water, it's like, (gasps) but it's dysfunctional. And I think in later years when David spared Saul's life, it wasn't just because he honored the position that Saul had, but because he had this dysfunctional attachment to Saul because it was the first time that he got words of affirmation for a man that was like a father. But David performed for Saul, and Saul is like many people in the church that are tormented, that come to church just to be around the Spirit of God, just to be around people that carry the Spirit of God, just to be in the atmosphere of worship. And they get a relief from that tormenting spirit for a while. They hear some really good things and have a little bit of relief from what's been tormenting them, but they never let those words penetrate their heart. They never let themselves truly be brought back to the foot of the cross, into the presence of God. They never give those things that God is asking for them to give to him because he knows their burdens that are too heavy for his people to carry. And they never get set free. And in Saul's life, he became more and more tormented by the memories of all of the things that he did. And instead of getting better, he got worse. And then David continued to perform. He performed for Saul. It says that he went down, that uh, he was invited to live in Saul's house and then his dad sends him off with like a dowry for Saul. He ladens up a, a cow with all of this bread and wine and a young goat as a gift for Saul along with his son. He's like, thank you so much for taking my shame out of my house. Here, you can have him and just to sweeten the deal, I've got him to bribe you with this stuff. Please don't ever let him come back. I want you to have this boy. And David lives in the house of Saul, but then Saul and the older men go off to battle Goliath and they go down to the valley. So David goes back and pays his natural father a visit. And his dad doesn't ask how David's doing, but he says, hey, let me give you some cheese and send you down to that battle so you can check on your brothers for me. And as David's walking down there, he hears the men of Israel saying, If there's anybody that can take down that giant, the king will give him a fortune as a reward. He'll give him his daughter and he'll make sure that none of the men in that man's house ever have to pay taxes again. And David thinks, gosh, I could really, I could really get Saul to love me even more. I I could be like a hero to him. I could make him indebted to me so he'd never never let me go. And maybe for the first time in my life, my natural fathers and my brothers would be grateful for me rather than just hating me. I might only be a young boy with some rocks in my pocket, but like this is my one chance. This is my one chance and I would rather, 
I would rather risk it and die trying because I don't feel like I have any worth on my own and this is one chance for me to feel worthwhile for the first time in my life. And God's with him. And he takes down the giant. I believe that God was with him, but I believe that he did it for the wrong reasons. And I think that that just continued to plague him for his life, that he married for position, not for love. He married the king's daughter, but she didn't know whether she wanted to be a princess or a wife. And then he thought, okay, well, maybe I'll marry, marry a strong woman that is, uh, that's gonna challenge me. So he marries Abigail. He marries four more women for position. And then he finds himself one night, he's checked all the boxes of accomplishment in his life, but even the thrill of winning at battle isn't thrilling enough to him anymore. And he finds himself on the roof of the castle in a time where kings are supposed to be at war with their men. His army is out and he's back at the, the house, not able to sleep, wandering around, looking out into the night. And he sees this woman who's breathtaking on the roof. And this isn't biblical, but I, I, I believe it's, it's hinted at and I think that it's possible that he was looking out there and thinking, gosh, I've performed for so long. I've done so much for so many people. I've gotten all of the rewards of performance. I just wanna do something for me for once in my life. So he calls to one of his men and he's like, that, that lady that's bathing on the roof, who is she? The guy's like, oh, that's Bathsheba. He's, he's one of your general's wives. He's the wife of your Uriah. And then David concocts this plan and over-spiritualizes the adultery, asks Bathsheba if she ceremonially cleansed herself before sleeping with her, thinking, well, maybe if I just uh, tell God that I'm, I'm still following the law, that he'll bless He'll bless this. We can do some very crazy things when we're lost and confused, even though if we, we've experienced the spirit of God being on our life, it doesn't, make us, it doesn't make us immune to being human. You know, and a lot of people mistake temptation. Temptation isn't sin. Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. There are things that God built into men. We're supposed to be able to look upon a woman and appreciate her beauty, but we're supposed to save that desire for our wives. David was tempted, and I believe in that moment he could have stopped, but he didn't, he asked. So who is she? And then he came with a plan. And I've wondered so long, how could somebody like David, a man after God's own heart, the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel, the leader of God's people, this brilliant, brilliant Renaissance man, fail like that. And I realized that I had a moment like that. That I'd gotten sober from drugs and alcohol by a miracle of God when I was 19 years old. I had an encounter with God on the floor of a Starbucks bathroom and he set me free from drugs and alcohol. But that was the only thing that I gave him in that moment. I continued to think that if I just got the girl, the car, the job, the house, the life, if I could just get it together on the outside, then maybe I would feel it on the inside. And it took me about 10 years to get to the end of that list. And I was in New York City for three months on a work assignment. 
I had a girl back at home. I'd gone through a lot of dysfunction earlier in my life, looking for love in literally all the wrong places. I'd burnt a lot of bridges, done a lot of things wrong, but I'd finally got to this place where I had the girl. I got approved for the loan to buy the house. I had the position, I had the car, I was in great shape. I had all of the things on the outside. But the closer that I got to the completion of that list, the more hopeless, the more desperate I became. And one night in a moment of desperation, I cheated on the girl at home and a tormenting spirit came on me and I was filled with anxiety. I had a full-blown panic attack in the middle of Times Square in New York and I thought I was gonna lose my life. And then I turned back to God, but on my own strength, I thought if my material existence didn't work out that I'd go be a monk. But I was seeking God thinking that there was something that I could do to get closer to him by perfecting myself rather than letting him perfect me. And that was the beginning of the end for my old life. Because when I checked the final box and realized that I was still wanting, I had nowhere else to turn but to God. And there was a spiritual father that came into my life and he didn't come with answers, he came with questions. And he led me to a place to unravel my intellectual pride, unravel my spiritual prejudice. And let me ask, ask myself the question of who is God? He gave me some pointers in how to find him and I found myself at a church and I heard the gospel. I heard that it wasn't about me performing for acceptance because I could never perform and if I believed that God was like that, that I would always be trying to please a God that never quite seemed pleased enough with me. But if I would just accept a relationship like a son to a perfect father, that he would guide me in his time and in his way maturing me through the seasons of life, perfecting me from glory to glory. And I heard the gospel for the first time and I accepted it in my heart. And it took some time for my life to change, but it started to change. And I'll tell you that the man that I was like then has been restored in sonship. And because of that, he's restored every other area of my life. I've dealt with my past, both with God and with people. There's not a single place that I could go on this earth where I could see somebody that would freak me out because I've, I've sat down in the presence of my enemies. I've sat down at the table that God invited me to. I haven't brought their wrongs to them. I've brought my wrongs, I've, my wrongs to them and I've made them right. I've repented to God, but I've also brought my failures to man that God says in the, the, in the book of James, it says that confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. God's cornered the market on salvation, but he gives us the ministry of healing. Can I have everybody in here bow their heads and close their eyes this morning? If you know that though you might have it together on the outside, that there's still something major missing on the inside. I wanna invite you into the relationship with God, like the one that I have of knowing him as a father. 
whether you had a natural dad in your life, whether you're a man or a woman, if you know that something's missing and you know that there's more for you today and there, you know that there's things that you need to make right and there, God's highlighted some of those during this message, I wanna give you the opportunity to respond. Whether you've been Christian your whole life or you're making a decision for the first time today, if you know that there's things in your life that aren't right now, but you have faith that God can make them right. Can you just raise your hand right now? God bless you. 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 Now, while every head is bowed and every eye is still closed, I want to lead you in a prayer. You can just repeat after me, and I want everybody in this room to repeat this prayer with me so that we can welcome our brothers and sisters into heaven with a great cloud of witnesses. Repeat after me, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you so loved me that you made a way for me to come back home, that you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, on a rescue mission to make me a son in the Father's house. God, I thank you that heaven is my home, that you are my Father, and that you have invited me into a community of your sons and daughters where I can be grown, where I can be matured, and where I can learn to love you, to love others, and to love the lost that you came and died for so they could be set free. God, make me an instrument to bring your kingdom here to earth in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time or for the last time, I wanna help you get resourced. We have a response team. They wanna connect you. God said that it's not good for man to be alone. This moment is the beginning of a journey, but it's in a journey that involves people, that involves community, and I want them to help you get next steps. So don't leave here after service find somebody, help get resources. And if that unlocks something in you and you need prayer, I'm gonna get the ministry team to come forward and they'll pray for you and uh, take somebody out to lunch. If there's things that came up for you today, don't hide them, talk about them. And God bless you. We'll see you on Wednesday. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen. For more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.